So today we're starting a, a, a new series, um, a series that has been entitled Our Only Hope. <clears throat> That's the main title for the series. Uh, this study that we are going to work through uh, is adapted from a, a conference that was held uh, by the Church Institute, which is part of the Mid- Mid- Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. It was, a, it was a conference directly at pastors, so we could adapt some of this. Uh, we, I have adapted a lot of it in the beginning. Uh, we will adapt as you go through, but the main thrust of the conference will still be uh, the gist of what we're going to be speaking about on our, in our discipleship boardings. Uh, they, sub, they subtitle this particular study, uh, The Supremacy of Christ in a Postmodern World. Uh, when I first saw the title, I expected something different, but that doesn't matter because what eventually came through the preaching and the teaching was really, very, very relevant to where we are. And we know we've thrown this word around a lot, and you may be expecting something from just seeing postmodern. Um, just for those of you who can't sometimes battle with these terms, when we speak about uh, postmodernism, it's a, it's a philosophy that rejects the concepts of rationality, objectivity, Universal truth. That should sound more familiar to you now, since we have wokeness on our on our dinner plates, in our cars, over the radio, everywhere. That's going to make more sense to you now, because what we're seeing now is the ultimate outcome of a postmodern world worldview. And what it deals with is things like um, they reject objectivity. We know it's about my truth, my reality now is they deal with power structures in a way which we are not used to. Think BLM, think Antifa, think uh, Just Stop Oil, power structures that we find offensive. Uh, Postmodernism deals with social constructs like transgenderism. Now, I'm saying these things because that's in the title. But you're going to find as we work through the study, we're going to go to some very basic old school. I call old school stuff because it's the sound stuff that we have learned over the years from God's Word. And you, you will find that no matter how trends change, no matter how movements come and go, God's Word remains the same, it remains constant, and continually and consistently has an answer for every worldview, no matter how much they try to change the status quo of what we know to be the truth. And so, we are going to be looking at our only hope, who is Christ, and uh, my prayer is that as we come through the study, that that will be the focus. That he's the one who provides with hope, not, not, not men's thinking, not, not systems, not, not a worldviews at all, that are adapted to meet men in their need. We need Christ, and he's the only one who is our hope, has been, will be, and indeed is the one that we look to for all our, our needs. One little thing you may, you'll see at the bottom right-hand corner of the screen is a, 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 a logo, Living a Bible Church. It's going to be there all the time. You're going to maybe, you may be irritated by it. Don't tell me I made a mistake. It's there for a reason because what you're seeing is the logo. But what Lyle is trying to do, and we're going to see how it works, when he goes online, that square will take up my picture and the slide will also be shown online. So those of you who have family home or are looking at this online today, ask them what it looked like. We are recording it. We're trying to see if we can do PowerPoint online. Show the slides so those who are watching online will see the slides. 
and they will also see a preacher in the right-hand corner. If you watch YouTube, that's a very common in conferences, and uh, they will get used to that. So, that is our, our run into this morning's uh, study. So, we're going to go through a study that uh, is titled in Maine, Our Only Hope, the Supremacy of Christ in a Postmodern World. Uh, and we're going to look at this uh, subject under three subheadings or three parts. Uh, number one, Christ and discouragement, which we will start today. Number two, Christ and discipleship. Number three, Christ and the church. Number four, Christ and the world. Number five, Christ and culture. And number six, Christ, our only hope, which will be the wrap-up for the series. We will be following this outline over the next several weeks. It will most probably take about ten weeks to cover because we're not going to cover every single part in just one week, especially if we can have some interaction. So let's go to, to part one. Let's start with part one. Christ and discouragement. This is a subject, I think, which we need to uh, grapple with every day. We live in a rapidly changing world. The world we live in is, uh, is a world which discourages us very easily. It's easy to become discouraged. We live in a world that is hostile. A world that is opposed to the Bible and hostile to Christianity. And being hostile means that they are at war with us. We are in a war. Make no mistake about it. It may be subtle. It may be subliminal. It may be subdued. But we are in a war. And the war is getting more ferocious as every day goes by. Don't be um, mistaken by the, the smiling faces or the, or the syrupy sweet words you sometimes hear from some of the proponents on the other side. But we are at war. This is a hostile world. It's a world that is antagonistic, unfavorable, and unfriendly towards all those who call Jesus Lord and Savior. We are in this world. We seek to win them for Christ, but we're not all of this world. And they are enemies of the cross. We need to always bear in mind that as much as we deal with them graciously, and with love, and with concern, and with desire to see them one for Christ, they are enemies of the cross. A world in which we have to fend for ourselves on a daily basis. It's, an, it's also an adversarial world. In working environments that make more and more demands for us to conform to a woke agenda. I'm not going to look at wokeness. We've done that. You can follow up on, the, on our site. You can find those, um, those recordings. But we are living in a world that tries to make us conform to their woke agenda. And being, advers- and being adversarial means that each side is antagonistic, sharply opposed to each other. And we are sharply opposed to what the world presents. We should be, because the world presents today everything that is not of Christ. We are locked in a deeply divided rivalry. The world is combative, and that is a world that we're working. And we are also slowly running out of space to maneuver our children through along a path of sanity schools where they're equally combative. Schools have been overtaken by transgender-driven bullying, and the world that we see today all around us is more prevalent in our schools than many of us are willing to, to accept. And so as as Christians, we need to make sure that we know that we have a worldview that withstands all these onslaughts 
And it withstands it purely because our worldview is Bible-based. We need to get back to that and claim it in a way which empowers us every single day to face this hostile adversarial world and do so with grace, but with determination to live for Christ in a way which honors Him. This world is a world that's threatening. When we make an attempt to evangelize the lost, we feel threatened by them. Uh, let's face it, uh, many of us go out and uh, we never are unaware of the fact that we are concerned we may meet someone today who's going to out-argue us. We know that the world is more informed today than ever before, but they're not any better informed than they've been in the past. They see these things through darkened eyes, through uh, blindness that is part of their sinful nature, and yet they have responses which they threaten us with. And, and so often we go out there and we feel threatened, just even in evangelizing the world. And we need to do that. We need to go out despite the fact that we have fear in our hearts and pray for boldness. Boldness to not only just share the gospel, but boldness to stick to the end until someone either openly declares that you are against God or openly repents and finds salvation. So we live in a world that's, that's hostile, adversarial, and threatening. This is the world we live in. And this is the world that we've been left in. John chapter 17, verse 14. This is the words of our Savior. Thinking about us in this world. He says as he prays to his Father, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Listen to this. When you think about why we are here, what's the, why do we go through all of this? Listen to those words in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This world is not our home. <clears throat> but we have been sent here by Christ to be light and salt, to be a witness, to take the, the forces of evil head on as, he, as, a, as the prince of this world works through his followers and try and <clears throat> minimize, <clears throat> diminish, eradicate the word of the gospel. It's easy for Christians to grow discouraged, more so today than ever before. Christians are not immune to being discouraged. And this morning we want to look a bit at discouragement. And we try and identify what we mean by that and how it impacts our lives and what we need to do about dealing with discouragement. Christians are not immune to discouragement. But we have a Savior who was exposed to far more than we ever will be. And He is in our corner. We're not alone. We're not there without equipment. We have the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who illuminates the Word to us. And we have our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who intercedes for us. He is in our corner. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace 
to help in time of need. Times of need bring us into discouragement, but we are not alone. We, haven't, we are not unprepared for the Savior has not only prepared us and equipped us, but intercedes for us so that we can indeed uh, be effective in a world that hates him. So, we can talk this morning about discouragement. What is discouragement? What is discouragement? All right, I'm asking questions too soon. So, I'm going to try and place discouragement in a... In a in a set of uh, in a set of things that is closely related to. So let's look at what it is not. Discouragement is not disappointment. Disappointment is common in everyday life. We all are disappointed from time to time. Christians are faced with disappointments as much as non-Christians are. We're not immune to disappointments. Disappointments meet us almost every day of the week. Disappointment is nothing more than finding that our expectations have not been met. That's what disappointments are. Or not met to our satisfaction. Sometimes we, we, we expect things that doesn't happen and we are disappointed and we voice our disappointments and we show our disappointment. But disappointments is common to all men. So here's a question. What can we do to avoid disappointments? No? Brother, you're right in front. You're the easiest target. <laughs> So, no, disappointments are things that, uh, that happen because of things going out of control, but we can avoid some disappointments. Ben? And, and low. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Set lower expectations. Absolutely. If you aim, and what we, he's right, and it's realistic. We need to aim more at more realistic things. If achievements are set realistically and we achieve them, we don't have disappointments. That's everyday life. If you want to buy yourself a Maserati, but you're only earning 5,000 rand a month, that's a, a, a target way too high. All right? Deal with something else. Make better choices. We make choices all the time. And many of the choices we make are unrealistic. And when we make this a choice, we have disappointments. Do not be driven by instant gratification. We want things, we want it now, we want it big, we want it bright, we want it loud. And we don't get it. We, we become big and bright and loud in our dissatisfaction. Disappointments come when choices are either poorly made or sometimes things beyond their control. You ordered something online and they promised you for one week and now it's six months and they still haven't found it. Instead of coming to you from China, it's gone to Germany. It happens. We all live with this. And we get disappointed. And we voice it. And guess who gets the brunt of our disappointments, which is really a... A condition that we all, ex- all, all experience? Our wives, our children, our dogs, they get the feel when we are disappointed. So, so it's not disappointment. This discouragement is a bit more than that. It's not disappointment, but it, it maybe has its roots in that. It's a bit more than it. It also is not, we've done that, it also is not depression. So we've dealt with depression, and again, I'm, something I'm not going to go into because the has covered that quite extensively when we dealt with um, neuthetical counseling. Uh, but depression uh, is rather more than discouragement. Depression is perhaps defined in one way as a loss of hope. When people lose hope, they become depressed. Now, I'm going to say this, as I've been said before, I'm going to say it again. Depression is not an option for a Christian. It's not optional. I'm going to qualify that. But generally speaking, uh, it's not 
optional for the believer. I understand there are certain cases where there are clinical conditions that lead to depression, where there are things that happen within our bodies that cause it. For instance, take something like uh, postpartum depression, which women go through. That happens, that could happen because of an imbalance of progesterone. Something real is taking place in your body. It can be measured through a test, and people can deal with it. That is something that's, that, 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 is, that is physical. You can measure it. But most cases of, of depression that we find in the world today is mental, psychosomatic. It's in the head. And people try and deal with that, and we've gone through all of that. We've looked at all the approaches that we find that psychologists and psychoanalysts attempt to bring your head right by asking you what's wrong and then telling you what you tell them what you want to do. So it's not depression. Um, most depressions are treated psychologically as a condition of the mind. In reality, in reality, depression in an unbeliever is a condition of the heart and needs spiritual intervention and not psychoanalysis. The answer to depression, generally speaking, is salvific. And we covered that in our teaching. I'm not going to go there. But we need to look at why is depression not, op- not optional for a believer? I want you to turn to Psalm 42, please. Here we go. Sorry, I could have found my Bible. Psalm 42. Listen to the words of the psalmist when he's faced with, with things that would cause him to be cast down. Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? This is a man who's battling with his inner emotions. It's, it's, it's hitting him hard. Look at his answer. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Why are you cast down on my soul? Hoping God. This is the answer to anything that looks like depression in life. When we feel we are taking getting something that's a bit more than discouragement, let our hearts not fail. We have one to whom we can turn and one who is able to help us in the midst of all of that. The unbeliever says that his depression depression is caused by the trouble, the stress, oppressions of every life, and they can't face it. Life comes to them and they buckle. This is the very place that the Christian finds their strength. Romans chapter 5. We're going to go to several verses today. I'm going to go through them carefully and slowly. And I think later I'm going to let the scriptures speak for themselves as we go through this. Whereas the unbeliever looks at the onslaughts of the world and buckles and becomes depressed and sometimes suicidal, the Christian takes exactly the opposite stance. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice... In our sufferings, the world thinks you're mad when you speak like that. We are not masochistic. We don't long to suffer. We don't look for suffering. We don't flagellate ourselves. We don't climb upstairs on our knees. We don't put nails to our hands on, on Easter Sunday. We don't do those things. That is not what we intend. But when we do suffer, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, 
And hope <clears throat> does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So whereas the world buckles in the face of suffering, we grow stronger. As long as we rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the hope of our salvation. So, if that is depression and that is disappointment, where does discouragement fit in? So discouragement fits somewhere between those two. And sometimes it's closer to disappointment, and sometimes it borders the pressure, but discouragement, some of you all, ex- all experience, falls somewhere between those two. It falls between depression and disappointment, and sometimes in our life we have to deal with it depending where it is. So, discouragement. If disappointment is not had, the expectation met, and depression is sinking into hopelessness, what is discouragement? Discouragement is allowing circumstances to determine how we feel about any given situation. It's much, it lies very much in our control. Discouragement arises when we are in situations that are beyond our control and we feel discouraged because of that. Remember that even as Christians, we cannot insulate ourselves from discouragement. Discouragement comes because of circumstantial things. And most often beyond the control. There's no guarantees that we will not be exposed to those things that discourage men in general. But we need to face discouragement as believers in a different way. When your child comes home one day and says to you that they don't go to school anymore because they're being bullied. And you try to do something about that. And you find you go and you try and do everything you can with the school and nothing happens. You become discouraged. They become discouraged. And you realize that, well, what must I do? That may be a situation beyond your control in that it came upon you out of your control, but its outcomes still remain within your control. We need to apply the word of God in these situations, not only to our own lives and to our own minds, but the situation around us. Discouragement is something common with disappointment, and like disappointment, discouragement comes to all of us at some time. This is part of life. While we cannot make choices to prevent discouragement, we can take steps to prepare ourselves for enduring discouragement in the way that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when we face discouragement, we need to make biblical responses. Take steps that are biblically sound. Not react, but respond in a biblical way. Not have a knee-jerk reaction, but have a heart-considered response. And very often... When discouragement comes, it comes to us when we are not in, I don't want to use the word not in a good place, that's such a meaningless phrase. When we are facing other conditions that distress us, uh, we know none of us live in a cocoon at home where everything goes right. Children wake up crying, go down with illnesses. Mothers wake up with headaches and other illnesses. We wake up in the morning expecting to go to work and realize that they changed the load schedule last night. And so at six, you've got no power to make breakfast. Go outside and you find your battery's been stolen out of your car. These things happen. It's a way of life. None of us are immune from that. But when we are faced with that, we need to have a biblical response to how we deal with discouragements in this life. Any questions? Any comments? 
what I speak about now, not one of you have not been in this in some place in your life. So as we go through this today, this today next week, which we'll continue with the subject next week, I want you to think about things that discourage you and perhaps bring to our discussion how solutions have been arrived at as you try to respond biblically to the discouragements that faces you. So, how do we deal with discouragement? A biblical response. Number one, we overcome discouragement by relying on the Word of God. That's the Bible itself. And let me say this, and it's from personal experience. When you are in the middle of discouragement, almost the last thing you want to do is go read the Word. Almost the last thing you want to do is pray. In fact, very often, the, the, very, the very first things we do when we are in the midst of discouragement, the words that come from our lips are, Why me, Lord? Why is this happening to me now? I have done X, Y, and Z. I've endeavored to do A, B, and C, and yet I'm now in the midst of a situation that's driving me to discouragement. And that's a time when the last thing we want to do is turn to God's word. We, we, we wallow in self-pity. We wallow in feeling that we have been badly done by. We feel that we don't deserve this. We are better than this. It's amazing how very quickly we forget that we are not good. We are not better. We are purely saved by grace. And we at least have a recourse when we are discouraged. The world has no recourse. The world goes to drugs. They go to violence. They go to suicide. They turn to things that have a dark end. We have a recourse. It's called the Word of God. When we are discouraged, we go to God's Word. Psalm 119. The psalmist, many of the psalms are about the writer, whether it's David, the sons of Korah, or others, they write about times when they are discouraged and in the midst of discouragement. And they can talk about, in the writing of the psalm, of what the recourse is at that time. Psalm 119, verse 49. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. That's where our hope lies. It's in the word of God. This is my comfort in my affliction. The word for affliction here is poverty. It's misery. The psalmist is in misery. He's got poverty in some ways. It may not be money. It may be poverty of spirit. But he says, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promises, or that your promise, gives me life. In the midst of affliction and misery and poverty, we flee to God's word for comfort and for support. Verse 143, same psalm, same psalmist, 143. Trouble and anguish have found me out. He wasn't looking for trouble. He wasn't looking for anguish. It found him out. Trouble and anguish found me out. This is distress. But your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Without understanding God's word, life is going to become a hard thing to live. Life is going to become a difficult thing to live because we can rely on our own, uh, our own strength, our own common sense, as we call it, which is not so common after all. And we will try and rely on our own efforts. 
Our reliance needs to be on God and on His Word. When distress comes, when trouble comes, when anguish finds you, when you don't want it to find you, that's the time you turn to the Lord and to His words. He says your law is true. But we're not the only ones who go through discouragement. Our brothers and sisters with us go through discouragement too. And sometimes we are impervious to their discouragement because we're so taken up with our own little world. We're all guilty of that. We're all very self-focused, self-aggrandizing beings. We want to have things our way for ourselves when we want it and we want it the best way we can. And while very often we say, I'm thinking about you, brother and sister, we very often think about ourselves first. We forget that if we're going through discouragement, others are too, and sometimes greater than we are. We complain when our feet are cold, but there's a man outside without shoes. There's a brother living perhaps in dire needs, and we've gone that they must take us to James, and we realize that we kind of um, recognize people who we think are like ourselves and are, are well off, and we don't recognize those who are not like us are, are suffering. But what is the responsibility to help others? in the discouragement. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You may think you don't have an obligation, but Paul says differently. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idol. We like that. We like to tell someone when they're wrong. Like that someone, listen, brother, you've got to get your hands in the pocket and start doing something. Admonish the idol, which is a godly thing to do, a biblical thing to do. Look at the next one. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always to seek to do good to one another and to everyone, and rejoice always. We will get to that part. Rejoicing in our discouragement. But we are not only required to turn to God and His Word when we are discouraged, we are to encourage each other to turn to God and to His Word when they are discouraged. And together, we can work ourselves through discouragement. Who is the greatest example of discouragement? Who has been discouraged to the point that he was frustrated on every level? Turn to Romans chapter 15. And we see how Paul follows his follows the example of Christ. Now, but in because of his trust in a Savior who is supreme in his life, he deals with discouragement in a way which indeed we need to emulate. Romans chapter 15. We are strong. Have an obligation. You are Thessalonians, which sounded, well, we just have to consider our brothers, but listen to these words. We are strong. Have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. He's just come through a portion in the prior chapter of dealing with a brother who um, is weaker and it's about food and how we not, should not be offending that brother because when we offend that brother, we sin against Christ. Uh, and he's coming through that, but as we apply this in, in more ways than one, where there are those who are failing because of weakness, we need to 
we are obligated to bear with them. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Here's an example. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, and that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So Paul draws those, three, those things together. He draws endurance, which we showed earlier that endurance comes out of suffering. He takes endurance and he ties endurance to encouragement. And he says that we might have hope. And the hope is indeed in Christ. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That together you may, have, may with one voice glorify the God in faith, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore... Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Not only are we required to place our uh, discouragement under the overarching authority of God's word, we are obligated to help those who are also going through difficulties to endure and endure so that through encouragement, we together with them may live in harmony. Our example, live in harmony in the midst of discouragement in the cord with Christ. Questions, comments. I feel alone up here. <laughs> right? Let's keep going. So, our first response to, to discouragement was a biblical response. This one is not as easy as it is to say, but Second response, overcome discouragement by choosing joy. And that's a hard thing, to choose joy, to follow a command to rejoice while you're in the midst of discouragement. I said earlier that when we're discouraged, we don't want to read God's word. We try and not go there. And I think half the time we are scared of going there, is we may just find that as the scriptures are opened, the Holy Spirit may reveal to us that we are the cause of our own discouragement. And I think sometimes that's why we don't go there. But nonetheless, a second response to discouragement is that we should be choosing joy. Joy and rejoicing have to be independent of our circumstances. Joy and rejoicing does not imply that you do not experience sorrow. We all experience sorrow. Sorrow is something that comes our way. I'm going to give an example of two men, and you all know the story so well, and it, and, it, and it bears value in repeating the occurrence of two men found in conditions that would have, would have discouraged any other two men to the point of suicide, to the point of, of pulling their hair out, would have discouraged them to the point where they would have been wailing and moaning and groaning, but not these two men. Acts chapter 16, please. And so as Paul writes about uh, joy in, in suffering, again, we've said this before, we say it again, Paul is not a teacher who says, do as I say, and don't do as I do. Paul does first, and then he follows through with his teaching. Acts chapter 16. And I want to go there first to read. I don't want us to miss anything of that section, just very briefly. Acts chapter 16. And we can pick up from verse 16. 
rather from verse 25. So Paul and Silas end up in a, in a Roman jail. This is not the comfort of Paulsmore. This is a real jail. It's a hole in the ground. It's unpleasant. It's filthy. Ridden with disease. It's not a place to be for anyone. And they are in the inner prison, in the deepest part of the hole that they can be. Verse 22. So the crown enjoins in attacking Paul and Silas, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. That means they were beaten to a pulp. They were beaten with rods, canes, uh, till they were bleeding. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. Paul and Silas had been beaten with sticks, with, with hands. They'd been bleeding from their backs, bleeding from their face. Eyes would have been swollen. They'd have been in a state that you do not want to see another human being in. That is the state they were in. And then, be, despite being in all that suffering and pain and anguish and being abused to the point that's close to death, they threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So did Paul and Silas have reason to be discouraged? Yeah. Did they do anything wrong? On the contrary, they didn't think it was right. Did they do something that would have warranted this kind of treatment from anybody? No. They had every right to be discouraged. To the point of saying, we're giving up. This is too much for us. We can't keep evangelizing if this is going to be the result of trying to do what is right. No. That's not Paul and Silas. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. In abject pain and suffering, every reason to be discouraged, and they're singing hymns and praising God. They were joyful in their suffering. Was it sorrowful? Yes. Were they in pain? Yes. Were they bleeding? Yes. Would they have rather been somewhere else? Most likely. But they were in the right place at the right time because God wanted them to be there. Oh, sorry, <clears throat> when the Philippian jailer cried out, what must I do to be saved? And so they rejoice in their suffering. Rejoicing does not mean that uh, that you do not experience sorrow. Rejoicing does not mean that you will escape pain. And it's independent of our circumstance. Our rejoicing should not be attached to our circumstance. In other words, we shouldn't rejoice a little bit when our, when our discouragement is a little and not rejoice at all when our discouragement is great. Discouragement comes and sorrow comes. Our rejoicing remains because we are in Christ and His Word sustains us at those times. Rejoicing is not optional. The same man who wrote, the same man who we read about in Acts chapter 16. Look at him years later. Philippians chapter 4. So let me see Paul going through suffering and rejoicing in his suffering in Acts chapter 16. Look at Philippians chapter 4. Verse 4. The apostle speaking. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. He's not saying, try and rejoice when you find conditions are good. He's not saying, rejoice when it suits your agenda. 
He's not saying rejoice when your kids are all obedient and your wife is submissive and you're a loving husband and your dog obeys you and he says, sit down. When everything is just hunky-dory, everything is just going your way. We rejoice at those times, but this is a command to rejoice. It's an instruction to rejoice. Rejoicing is something we do because we're instructed to do that. We rejoice as those who have a hope. Not as those who have no hope. Paul suffered in the, in the Philippian jail, and Paul rejoiced in the suffering in a Philippian jail. He writes the epistle to the Philippian church, while in a Roman jail, again in shackles and tied to a, a, a God, and he's telling the Philippian believers, you rejoice. Rejoicing is not optional for a Christian, it's an instruction. We need to rejoice and live lives that are full of joy. Rejoicing in the midst of sorrow. Again, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. Second Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10. Paul has a list of things here, speaking about himself. And he says, um, but he's suffering in verse 9, as a, 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 and yet, sorry, um, let me just read from verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left hand, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying. And behold, we live. Paul is giving the entire gamut of his lives, good and bad, up and down. Whatever has happened to men has happened to Paul. And that's the life he has lived. As dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's a massive claim. Always rejoicing. And it's something I think that as uh, Paul, as Apostle Paul encouraged us to do that, we should do well to follow him. Follow his example as he endeavored to magnify Christ in his life before men. So when they did the worst to him, he continued to rejoice in his Savior for his hope was in Christ. His strength was in the Word of God. His power came from the indwelling Holy Spirit. And as he, as he tapped into all of those resources, those divine resources, he was able to be joyful always. Those resources are not exclusive to the Apostle Paul. Those resources are also our resources. And so as we face the life we do, we need to know, know that whether it be discouragement from outside or discouragement from within, when I say from within, from in our family, ourselves, and our circles, we need to turn to God's Word to find guidance and strength. And we need to, in the face of all of this discouragement, rejoice. Two minutes. Questions. Answers. Comments. Caroline. Can you not say also that discouragement when someone kind of loses heart? Like, 
So you raised two uh, causes of discouragement. One is physical things which we have to take care of. The other is burnout. Both of those are able to be dealt with. And we, even though a person gets there, we can still take the moment as a teaching moment and try and make sure they don't go down the road again. But what was the cause of them facing burnout, which is a very common term today, or physical harm, what has caused him to arrive at those, those positions, usually? Wrong choices? Bad choices? Poor choices? Yeah. So that is exactly what you recognize exactly the, the point that we have to we have to deal with because it's common to our lives. So we can so because some things are good and good to do, we we don't have to keep doing them just because they are good to do. Others can do the same thing, but if what we are doing is good and it harms us or harms others, we should then rethink what we are doing. So yes, again, those are very practical points and it's, it's good questions because we deal with those things comes down to, when we look at life, life is not given to us as a little kit, which we open up in the morning, take out certain things, and put it back at night, and tomorrow it's, it's, it's all cool again. Life comes to us in, in, in various ways, with un, in, in unpredictable ways, and those things that Caroline has raised are the things we, just, we need to be careful of. Yes, yes, do things that are good for us physically, do things that are sound for us when it comes to our, 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 our energy, or what we are doing, how we apply our resources, our skills, and we do end up in those spaces, and others do, and we need to come alongside them. But it comes down to choices. And those, those, those things lead to discouragement purely because we have failed to be wise. And I think wisdom, we'll deal with that in another, in another, another part. Wisdom lies at the heart of applying God's word in such a way that we do what we are able to do in a way that honors him, in a way that glorifies Him, and a way that He expects us to do. But God does not expect us to do things we cannot do. We know that even when it comes to trials and testing, He doesn't test us beyond what we can endure. But with the trial, brings a way of escape. He knows our breaking points. We need to learn our breaking points. He knows when we are, when we are moving outside of what we are in skill, equipped, and gifted to do. We should move back into our own little corral. God knows us better than ourselves. And if we allow His Word... And we allow those who we work through amongst us to guide and, and, and counsel us. If we allow those to take place in our lives, then discouragement becomes less of a big thing in our lives. It is 5-2. I want to close. We will continue with this next week. Um, I've got another four points to go through. I want to close. I want to give us time to have a cup of coffee and come back again. But in closing, I want to just read one thing to you. You can turn to it if you want to. Habakkuk chapter, chapter 3. Last chapter of Habakkuk. And here again is words of encouragement as we see the right of Habakkuk raising up two astoundingly opposite conditions. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, though the, nor fruit be on the vines. That means there is no fruit to eat. There's no figs and fruit to help them. The produce of the olive fail, no oil, and the fields yield no food, no wheat, no barley, no grain. 
This is having no food to eat anywhere. The flock be cut off from the field, and there be no herd in the stalls, no meat, no milk, no wool for clothing. This is, this is living in a condition which is so um, severe that people uh, do, not know, do not know what to do. They're at the wit's end when you're in this kind of famine and there's nothing, no food, no oil, no meat, no milk, nothing. And what does Habakkuk say? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. When everything else fails, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your intervention in our lives. That you have saved us. You have called us. You have made us your children. Lord, having made us your children, you have given us every resource to live in a world that's hostile, that's adversarial, that's threatening. But the world, nonetheless, that our Savior has left us in so that we could witness to those around us of His saving grace, of Your love for us, and for the way You are able to change the lives of men if they but turn to You and repent. We pray for Your grace upon us now in Jesus' name and for His sake alone. Amen. We have uh, three minutes and then we'll start up with our uh, preaching.